Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and myself, radio host Emily Reese. Today, we're going to talk about wines and music that either remind us of springtime or are appropriate to drink or listen to at springtime. Indeed. That's, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Uh, check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Jill Mott. Good afternoon. Happy spring. Happy spring. We're, uh, we're, we're there. We are there. It's amazing. After, to be honest, a pretty easy winter for the Twin Cities metro. I mean, this is well, in, unlike. I'm going to interrupt you right there because yeah. we're at the, you know, we're at March. I know. And in There's Minnesota, left. that means we have March. April, mm-hmm. and sometimes a little bit of May before yeah, the snow is gone. That's very true. But it's we're true. there. We're, we're experiencing 30s to almost 50s mm-hmm. and uh, perfect temperatures to start exploring. These are new to you, these types of music and mm-hmm. wine, respectively. Awesome. So I'm going to talk about British light classical music, which is actually even a subgenre of what's called light music or light classical music, which uh, kind of has been around for a very long time, but definitely had its heyday in the kind of early to mid-1900s. Uh, so it's uh, fun to talk about that, and we'll hear some, which it's like impossible to not like. It's so happy and free. I thought about it as I was listening to it. I was like, wow, top 40 of yep. classical music. Yeah. So show tuny, yep. super fun. Yep. I'm going to talk about not rosé. I'm <gasps> sure then everybody's like, oh, is she going to talk about sparkling wine? <laughs> Not sparkling wine. No no pet gnats. Wow. Probably at some point. Yeah. But I am going to talk about chillable reds. Yes. From the Loire Valley specifically because there are great chillable reds made all over the world. Yeah. But um, the Loire Valley kills it and the wines are really, really appropriate for this this time of year. Sounds delicious. What do you want to start with? Let's start with music. All right, cool. Yeah, let's uh, listen to a little bit of British light classical music. Light classical. Was that a cue for me to start talking like this? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. As I said, subgenre of light classical music. And you can think of this as, you know, kind of easy listening anything, like easy listening jazz or easy listening, you know, top 40 music. or It's just something to appeal to the broader masses and to just give people a little smile on their face or something along those lines. In the UK, it became very popular, particularly because of BBC Radio. They had a show called the BBC Light Program from the mid-40s until the late 60s. So more than 20 years they ran this. And uh, it was just full of these little tiny kind of character orchestral usually pieces, some of which were from movies some of which went on to become theme songs for certain BBC programs or other uh, British television or film. Uh, so it was very much kind of hand-in-hand hand with 
media and the explosion of the need for music and media as well in that time. So when we talk about light music, like the light classical music, what what are the time frames that we're talking about there? Because I know it's probably a, a kind of broad. It is very broad because, I mean, you really could think there were several episodes back where uh, you and I talked about waltzes and we talked about Johann Strauss and his family and his father and his brothers who were all uh, waltz composers. You really could think of those waltz concerts almost as light classical. It's tend, it can have a sadly kind of a snobbery attached to it where it's like well that's not serious classical music Mm -hmm. and to be fair it's not it's not a symphony where you're taking a primary theme and developing it and then a secondary theme and then going through this broad development section and then bringing it all back at the end it's not this huge intricate roadmap for how to write a piece of music or to demonstrate your skill technically or your counterpoint prowess or anything like yeah. that. It's it's like literally just meant to lighten the mood. Yeah. And, and be melodic, right? There's always a melody. Super melodic. So yep. when was when was the heyday of this? Because I, I was as the more I researched it, the more I found that it seemed like a lot of the stuff was written like mid eighteen hundreds. Like yep. there's a lot of that. And granted, still even today people are writing it. But Yeah. Heyday as a category, not British. Sure, for around. sure. For okay. as light classical music, I would easily say mid eighteen hundreds. Okay, and you could uh, kind of say, you know, mid eighteen hundreds. We're not dealing with film or television, right? That's not till the nineteen hundreds. So, in the mid eighteen hundreds, a lot of this went hand in hand with just the bourgeoisie being able to enjoy classical music just as much as the next guy. Yeah, and especially with like salon music, so people having small gatherings in their home and playing music. You know, it's all kinds of comes from this just casual listening of classical music rather than we're going to seriously study this fugue and understand where the subject is, where the counter subject is, where the final statement. You know, it's none of that. It's I, like, as I was listening to it, I was like. Ah, oh, my mother would love this. Like, it's because it's, it's very like um, Mary Poppins. You yeah. know, a lot of it's like very, very, very much so. So it'll be fun to yep, yep. to crank. So crank let's listen to. Uh, we'll listen to something by a, a very famous uh, British light classical composer named Ernest Tomlinson. He was alive from 1924. Just died in 2015. Uh, So Tomlinson was around for a very long time, and we're going to listen to a very lovely piece of his called Graceful Dance that he wrote in 1965. And then we'll talk a little bit more about Tomlinson because he's a neat fella. So here is Graceful Dance by Ernest Tomlinson from 1965. Just all the while, there should be the narrator being like, and then... Exactly. Hippity hop, jumped over yeah, the hillside. Yeah, no, it is. It's like, when you're driving on the interstate, be yeah. sure to wear your seatbelt. Yeah, I mean, a lot, of, and a lot of this music did accompany messages like that. A lot of it was maybe even propaganda-type music, you know, meant to kind of ease the message and some such. I mean, it really kind of ran the gamut. Well, and this guy, um, so he's from Rotensal, which is like quite far north in... England, and it seems like very, as I listen, it's very melodic in a pastoral sense. That is the huge word, pastoral. And you can hear, if you look up 
images of Rotensol, it looks Looks like like this sound. Beautiful houses with still thatched roofs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me about this guy. So Ernest Tomlinson, uh, again, as I said, 1924 to 2015, when the BBC in 1967 decided to stop their radio program that featured light classical music, they started purging, they started throwing out all their music. Because, of course, back in the day, the BBC had its own orchestra, too. So a lot of these recordings were played by the, so they had these scores, and they started throwing them all out. And Tomlinson stepped in and saved them all. And now there is a library on his family's estate that houses some 50,000 scores from wow. this era of British light classical music. So what, what were we just listening to? That was Graceful Dance okay. by Ernest Tomlinson. Cool. Yep. Sweet yep. for Strings. Right? It, it was came a sweet from for strings of some sort. A serenade for strings. Oh, okay. Yep. And uh, there are some absolutely wonderful serenades for strings out there. Uh, my favorite probably being from actually Russian composer Peter Tchaikovsky wrote one that's gorgeous. Uh, Edward Elgar wrote one. Dvorak wrote one. There's some beautiful serenades for strings out there. And basically a serenade for strings is just a multi-movement work for a string orchestra. So it's there's no flutes in there, there's no trumpet, it's just strings. And it's one of the most lush, beautiful, warm sounds. Yeah. So out of all of the genres mm-hmm. and composers, you know, because when I said pick some, what reminds you of spring? What do you want to listen to at springtime? You know, you had, you had hundreds of things you could have, avenues you oh, could yeah. have gone on. So why did you choose this? Just because it is lighthearted and it's sort of like take off your boots, put on the shoes that weigh less. Yep. Okay. You don't uh, need to do – you never need to anyway. But when you're listening to this genre of music, I don't turn on my brain where I'm like, oh, what's happening to that theme? Oh, what's going on in the development section? I mean, it's just – you're just listening. You're just listening to a beautiful piece of music that's maybe like three or four minutes long. There's no multiple movements that you have to try and – parse into your brain about how they work together. You know what I mean? Take like, a walk through a park and yeah. see the birds migrating. Exactly. Dust. And it really does Do just, you know, really evoke that scene of a beautiful countryside. And, you know, it's not 20 below on that countryside. It's a nice, yeah. balmy 65 degrees. And, Even spring cleaning. I could yeah. see it being like spring cleaning. You're just like cleaning out the garage and dusting. And it's yeah. like la da 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 Exactly. <laughs> I know, it is. Love you just that. want the bluebirds to flit about and Snow White to walk through the door. That's all. <laughs> and help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love that. Yeah. So, okay. all right. Well, let me try some of this chillable red. My goodness. Yeah. So when I think of, like, why would I choose a chillable red? Because why, you know, I could have gone down the avenue of, like, refreshing and bubbly mm-hmm. or, you know, chilled rosés, whatever. Because... Let's face it, in a lot of climates at this time of year, people are still eating heavier food, so they might want, even though all wines should be refreshing, reds sort of evoke this, like, you're able to accompany it with heavier fare, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, when it is 40 degrees, it's like a schizophrenic time. And even though I drink rosé when it's 20 below, a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. And so chillable reds, you get the... You get the flavor and the complexity of a red wine with the refreshment 
of a, of a white wine or rosé. Yeah. Um, some things to note here, and, and we'll taste it, and then you know after a couple breaks, I'll, I'll talk to you about the wine itself. But when I have a chillable red, I usually put it in the fridge for like 20 to 30 minutes. Really? I don't get it ice cold. I don't put it in the freezer for an hour, you know, like I would, you know, well, I don't do that to anything. But some people would maybe <laughs> do to like a white wine. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I want the wine to be, if it's too cold, think of like macro lager. The reason why you put that in a chilled glass and you want it as cold as possible is because that hides flaws. Oh. If you have something that's really, once that warms up, you don't want to drink it, right? Which mm-hmm. is why everybody wants it so cold. With a chillable red, if it's too cold, all you're going to taste is structure. That fruit is going to go away. And so especially with wines from the Loire Valley where the fruit is like at the at the core of why they're sometimes so interesting along with their bright acidity. Mm-hmm. You want that chill to be there as like a kind of just like, you know, when you maybe roll down your window just a crack when it's 40 degrees. Oh, yeah. You just like, you're coaxing a little bit more complexity out with a little bit of a chill without like killing the fruit. And if it yeah. were room temperature, it would still be good. Mm-hmm. But it just tends to be like when you cut a fillet on the on the right bias and it's tender yeah, as opposed yeah. to when you cut it wrong and mm-hmm. it's chewy. Yeah. Chewy steak's still okay. Oh yeah. But let's face it, when it's tender it's better. It's one of, I have a list of like my favorite things that I've learned about wine from Jill Mott or just beverages, alcoholic beverages in general. And one of my favorite things is that whole trick where if it's too cold, just give it five minutes. Just hold the glass in your hand and warm it up a little and then taste it and it can change everything. It's amazing. Well, so this wine that we're going to taste has been open now for three days. And every time I open it, it's very actively still got some action in it, which is super cool. And some people might look at this and be like, that's just a really dark rosé. You know what? I don't understand those people because that 100% looks like a red wine to me. Like I would... I mean, and I'm not a sommelier, obviously, and I'm not in that industry, but it just looks like a red wine to me. Well, <laughs> be, <laughs> agreed. I think it's a really light, light red wine. So before we talk about the producer, which I'd love to intersperse that with some music, I would love for you to smell it and tell mm. me what you think it smells like. To me, it smells like cran like cranberries like dried cranberries yeah or like red currants like Mm -hmm. lean fruits yeah most of the time red wines from the loire valley that are like chillable reds they can be a little funky a little yeasty and estery but a lot of times they have this like delicious lean darker Mm. red fruit character it's like not overripe you know Mm. like too rich yeah another reason why i love this category of wine is because they tend to be because they have this ample amount of acidity, which don't let that stray you because acidity just is going to be a refreshment factor. It's what mm-hmm. distinguishes wine from water in a lot of cases. They're lower in alcohol in order to keep that level of acidity high. Think of like a, a really ripe piece of any fruit, banana, peach, you name it. Yeah. If you're picking it too late, you're going to be left with beautiful sweetness, but it's not really going to have the tartness, the refreshment factor. Right, yeah. And if you're picking a little early... You're going to maintain a lot of acidity. You want to make sure you you don't pick it too early because then you're not going to have development of fruit flavors and esters. Mm -hmm. But right in the middle is a sweet spot, and that's why you need to be careful to not chill it too long too because then 
because they're not super phenolic, meaning super smelly, yeah. if, you're, if it's too cold, you're going to kill that. Mm. But they tend to be this like 10 to maybe 11.5, 12% alcohol, which means they're like just perfect for crushing. The French word is called glu-glu, which means glup, 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 glup. That's a professional term, by the way, to scores and pours. Man, you hate it when I say this, but it has that like black peppery thing to me that I get from wine, and I want to know what that is. I, I think you're, I can smell it and I can feel it. That could be your perception of acids that's okay. happening with fruit. That in your mind it creates a sort of pepper, yeah, ester for sure. Um, the grape here, Pinot de Nuit. A lot of people say that that smells like white pepper, so that could be something. Grape that, of the night, Nuit. Uh, no, it's uh, P-I-N-E-A-U-D apostrophe A-U-N-I-S. Oh. De Auni. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very delicious. Light. Mm-hmm. And being open for three days. Imagine mm. this like on day one. Acid I'm, just like rips your face off in the best way possible. But this is still just like... Delicious. Mm, so good. The color too is startlingly red it's just very red <laughs> even though it's like light hue yeah of red right yeah it's just a very um kind of almost buckingham palace kind of red oh yeah to me yeah so a lot of red fruits on the palate really bright acidity but something that doesn't get in the way of conversation doesn't get in the way of food it's yeah. just like you could tip it back at a bonfire you know springtime bonfire they can be, like, this is a really thought-provoking wine, and we can talk about why, but it also, you can just, like, drink it and enjoy it. Yeah. So. Yummy. Love it. Where are we going from here? Happy British light classical music. Uh, we're going to listen with, to. With our chillable Loire Valley Reds. <laughs> yes. This may be the most, like, awkwardly awesome episode we've ever done. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we're going to talk about another very well-known British light classical composer named Eric Coates. Eric Coates lived from 1886 to 1957, and when Eric showed up for school at the Royal Academy of Music, he informed his composition instructor he didn't want to be writing oratorios and symphonies, he wanted to write light classical music. And that's what he did for his whole life. Mm. So hugely popular, uh, dozens upon dozens of pieces, and we're going to hear a really great uh, piece that he wrote in 1933 London Suite. Just a movement or two of it. So here we go. And it's a collection of three movements total, Mm -hmm. correct? Three movements. And this one's fun because um, remember how you were talking about uh, where Ernest Tomlinson lived and how, you know, just the landscape looks like that music. Well, this piece, Eric Coates wrote from the flat that he had in London and he could see all three of these streets. I can't remember what the streets are called. Let me look here. The Uh, Covent Garden, Garden, Westminster, and Knightsbridge. He saw all of those. And so that's why it's just cool to imagine him at the top of this flat writing this music as he's looking out over London and scoring it. Yeah, Knightsbridge is like one of the most coveted places to live in all of London. Mm -hmm. And Anybody that's into like keeping up with real estate and what's what in the real estate world, one of the most expensive flats in London was sold on in that Knightsbridge neighborhood, and they were um, it was for like for four hundred and thirty some square meters, which if you look at that's like the size of a shoebox, it was yeah. like fifteen million or something, Jeez. fifteen million pounds. So it's a very expensive it's neighborhood incredible. nowadays. Wow. 
Here's London Suite by Eric Coates. This is the first movement called Covent Garden. I mean, this is how I feel when you wake up on a Saturday morning and it's 70 degrees out and the sun is shining. This is how I feel. (laughs) Right? Yes. Don't you just want to conquer the day? I mean... And and in my world, it's a day that I got sleep, didn't drink too much. (laughs) I ran the night before and (laughs) ate no carbs or something like that. Like just the healthiest day yep. ever. Love it. So good. So it happens to me like four days a year. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. It's so like energetic. It's so energetic. Dun, 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 dun. Is the recording we're listening to? Does it have like an element of, it sounds like an older recording, is it that the case? Because I know this was recorded in like the 1930s. Yes, so, this was recorded in 1932. Okay. Yep. Right, I was, was going to say written in, but okay, recorded. Mm-hmm. Yep, written in, well, published in 1933. So, yeah. So do you mind if we listen to Knightsbridge? Not at all. I know it's a march of sorts. This is a march. Here's Knightsbridge. If I ever go to London, I'm... I'm going to walk into that neighborhood with this song on my iPod, determined to buy a $7,000 pair of shoes or something. It's like, <laughs> you're like, here I go. Here I go. Just kidding. So happy. So happy. So unoffensive. It's not making a bunch of demands on us mentally or orally. Melody-driven. Gets to this gets us to maybe uh, perhaps a, on a, a tone poem kind of track because what I would wonder is if you were to play either of those for the average Brit who you know maybe has a little bit of classical music in their repertoire but they're not yeah if you were to give them a choice of the two streets and say which does the do these remind you of if they had never heard it before yeah would they know like does I one wonder. evoke one more than the other nowadays because I wonder. obviously there's not too many people living that could remember that. Right. Right. You know, that could speak to that. So right. I'd be curious if it, mm-hmm. or even back in the day, could someone who didn't know Coates's music walk down both streets 
a few times, give them a feel, <laughs> play both, mm-hmm. and what would be the percentage of people that would be like, God, yeah, that really sounds like what that street evokes. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, it's been 90 years now, so. I don't know. I mean, a lot of times I listen to jazz and I was, I'm like, that does not sound like rain in September. You know, like, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yes. I, I don't know. So, but, yes. but obviously this is very, um, very neighborhoody yeah. London. It is. It's sure. great. It's great. Right, British well, light classical music. Springtime. Springtime. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Kill, do you want to hear about this producer? I really because do. Because I, I think it's a producer that you don't find much outside of uh, Minneapolis, Chicago. There are a few places on the coast to have this guy, but he's not readily found. Um, so his name is Brendan Tracy. Brendan Tracy's an interesting dude because he was born in New Jersey. His family relocated to San Francisco. They're hippies, and he was very much so like around cultural, very culturally leaded music. Um, he had, his mother was French, I believe, and his, um, so his aunt was was French, and he moved to France when he was 15 to like learn French. He um, was very into politics as a young lad, and so he um, was kind of learning about capitalism and, you know, all things red, uh, okay. uh, you know, decades ago. And when he moved back to the States, he was very into um, after he had learned French and he graduated from high school um, and maybe college. I can't remember. I don't think so. But he moved back to the States and um, was like very into punk. He was rock. You know, he like played in some bands. He was a DJ and married a French woman, relocated to France and started making wine. Amazing. Um, Yeah. Super amazing. But not just the story, it's like the wines that come from Brendan Tracy are so delicious, they're so thought-provoking, and they're all very much of a place. Like, I've never had a Brendan Tracy wine blind that I've been like, oh, that's from blah, blah, somewhere else in the world. They're like very much so of the Loire Valley, so northwestern France. And this is his 2017 Gorge Seche, which, like, he labels his wines Red Capitalism. Okay. Or something like that. Like he'll he'll name wines like um, very much so with like oxymoronic connotation because okay. he believes that names of wines and wines themselves are poetry. And he's not that I know of. I don't think he has any name of a region on his label okay. because he's not doing things by the book. Okay. And we've talked about that before, that mm-hmm. in order to put a, a popular region on your label, you usually have to follow a certain rule book. Yep. So his wines always say, wine of France, <laughs> vin de France. And you need to kind of know what the hell that, you know, you need to like yeah. look at the back label or something to see where it's from. So gorsesh means dry throat. Okay. <laughs> which this will definitely cure a dry yeah. throat. <laughs> um, it is mostly Pinot de Oni. But then it uh, has a small amount of gamay. The Pinot de Nuit is sent directly to press in most cases. So think of almost a white wine or rosé. But he's he has uh, the gamay here is a really rare mutation of gamay called gamay de Bouze. And if you were to splice gamay de Bouze down the middle, it's got red flesh. So very colored. Oh, neat. And so he employs sometimes a carbonic maceration, which is like that intracellular fermentation that we've talked about, which heightens aromas, decreases some acid and some tannin in wine. And you blend those together and you're left with like 
very high acid Pinot de Nuit with like uh, really cool heightened floral characteristics and beautiful color from the Gamay de Boos. Such beautiful color. It's so pretty. And Pinot de Nuit, just since the 1800s, this grape has been quite prevalent in the Loire Valley. And most people will shove it into a, a rosé blend or, you know, throw it into a sparkling wine blend. He's deciding to showcase it in this fashion with unfiltered, all native yeast to ferment, no sulfur added, and absolutely gorgeous. Now, Gamay de Boos, there's less than 150 hectares on planet Earth. That's incredible. Yeah. And so he's. Um, it's been identified since the 70s, but before that it was probably just tossed in like, oh, this is just Gamay or this okay. is just whatever, yep. tossed into blends. We don't know what this is. Just don't classify it and don't yeah. tell the authorities and blend it into whatever. <laughs> um, but so it's cool that they've found it and that Brendan has really embraced it. Um, so you're left with this like really fun wine that hails from – if anybody knows the Loire Valley, you start with Muscadet, very close to the ocean. You get to Tours and the center, the area around Anjou, and you go further, you get to Sancerre. If you're northwest of Sancerre, there's this area called the Vendomoise that has like, not, I mean, a lot of great wine, but not a lot of popular wine. And these grapes come from that area. Cheers. Cheers. Now it's perfect. Yeah. When we took it out of the fridge, mm-hmm. it was good, yeah. but it was a little too cold. Yeah. Now it's perfect. Yep. 32 minutes in. Amazing. Get home, put the wine in the fridge, mm-hmm. take a shower, do your thing, start to cook, and then take it out when you know you're like 30 minutes when away from wanting to crack yeah. it. Yeah. Pinot de Nuit is also, um, it's quite light in color. Like it never has a lot of pigment. Um, it's got really small, compact bunches, which if you physically think about what that looks like, you're going to have a lot more structure per flesh and, and juice ratio. More skin? Well, no, just yes, structure because of skin. Okay. So, and and acid. Okay. Like that, you got a higher amount of all the things that are not fruity and juicy that yeah. are more like yeah. structural. And so the, the grape is inherently a little more tannic and acidic than a lot of other wines. What's really cool about Pinot de Nuit is, is – it's really susceptible because it isn't doesn't ever get like super phenolic and super smelly. Okay, uh, of like all these different fruits and yeasts, mm-hmm. it, it does get yeasty, and it, you know we talked about the high pitched red fruits, but it never really gets. What's so cool is it's a really good transparent grape to showcase soil. Oh, neat! So when you start to smell deeper aromas, mm-hmm. you can usually start to think instead of, wow, it's probably a lot more extraction on the skins, maceration time, later harvesting, which those are all questions that happen. But a lot of times I go to, oh, are those silty or are those clay soils, thicker soils, right? And if it if it starts to be really high-toned, I could be like, wow, that's not a lot of maceration. But a, a lot of times I will veer off into, is that limestone soil, soils that are have a higher propensity to be like deliver a higher acid wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a really cool decision that Brendan made to blend some like gam- a, cl- a mutation of Gamay with this incredibly terroir driven yeah. hyper local varietal is really cool. I love that. Thanks Brendan. Thanks mm-hmm. Lee for getting it to us. Census wines, hashtag all day. Just kidding. <laughs>
Um, I'll say uh, just a couple more words about British light classical music, or let's just let's just broaden it to light classical in general. You know, one of the things, maybe when you were listening earlier and you heard it, you're like, well, I've heard all kinds of classical music like this. Why is this light? Why is this considered light? Um, because you will hear, quote unquote, lighter works by composers like Edward Elgar, who, let's face it, was British. Maybe Gordon Jacob, who was a British composer. Even Gustav Holst. But one of the things that stands out to me about the genre of light classical music is it stays in that vein all the time. Like it's, it's, this is what it sounds like. So just by mere fact that you hear composers who wrote music like that, their larger body of work demands that they're considered a different genre. Does that make sense? Kind of? Yes, in a thick way, but yes, <laughs> I know, it does. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be more uh, clear about it, but, um, you know, there are many lighter works that composers wrote around that time. Uh, just, you know, the, the popularity of, of, well, popular music kind of demanded it, uh, but then they definitely wrote many more serious works too. So you'll hear, you know, the Edward Elgar, uh, maybe nursery rhyme suite juxtaposed against his cello concerto. It's pretty different. Okay. So, you know. So there are, produ- there are, so what you're saying is right now, mm-hmm. I think of the producers that are conventional winemakers that are teeter-tottering between making natural wine and conventional wine. Mm-hmm. And some people opt to go one way wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. which those are the people that are, those are my homies. Yeah. But then there are people that like play with both and they try and they, mm-hmm. they're kind of, you know, they, people will know them maybe for one or the other. Mm-hmm. But so that's kind of what you're saying. There are people that well, had yeah. super serious works, mm-hmm. not that British light classical isn't serious. Exactly. But a way more complex, in-depth. With a different story to tell. Air. Yeah. Yep. They, they told a different and story. And so there are people that did both. There are people that did both. Exactly. And uh, that did both really, really well. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's great music and I hope you liked it. (laughs) I loved it. Here's to scores and pours. Scores and pours. To springtime. Springtime. (laughs) Those are all the mosquitoes that we'll hear in a few months. Yeah. Not long from now. Thanks for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and info about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider ponying up and making a financial contribution in euros or dollars to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.